Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So today, while we are in the midst of the Lenten season, I thought it might be helpful to talk through um, why why fast. And it sort of inspired a little bit by your um, Clapham commentary, talking about uh, you, you even you had a story in there as a kid where Lent, Lent purely meant no desserts. It was a miserable time. <laughs> and miserable. As, <laughs> As as we are in this season, but even for those that are unfamiliar with this season, um, but maybe intrigued by fasting or, or whatnot, um, you know, it's different to, to pick why to do it, but then um, how do we do it well? How do we do it well and not miss the point? So let's start there. Um, yeah. Fasting and how do we do it well? Yeah. <clears throat> well... Since this is a 50-50 arrangement in here, if I have a voting right, uh, let's let's use the old Simon Center before we get into how. Let's just review why quickly. <laughs> we'll start with why. <laughs> so I'm going to claim 51% ownership right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, and you're fired. But unfortunately, an ex-president had that line. And <laughs> it's, uh, it doesn't wear well anymore. Yeah, so... Uh, if why why fast has I think the better way to start or at least well, uh, here we helpful go. way to start. I would I would push back and say if you're going to fa- how do we fast well? Well, first you must understand why we fast. There you go. <laughs> All right, we're you're back. We're back and we're in sync again. Oh no, another boy band. <laughs> <laughs> really struggling on the start here. Oh man, I tell you what. Well, at least you're not the new kid on the block. Um, so here we go. Oh dear. If anybody doesn't like the tough tooties, man, it is it is it is cold this morning and it's early. <laughs> so uh, so why uh, why this why the disciplines in the in the first place? Your answer would be in your own words. Uh, it's it's um, maturing. It's it's part of the maturation process. Okay. <clears throat> That's right. <laughs> we're we're gonna okay, listeners. We're gonna have a, let's be it's, snotty to one another this morning. <laughs> it's it's how we learn to embody embody elements. It's it's where the our our faith becomes flesh. There you go. And, and why is that important? We learn to embody. Man, I never would ask you this question if I knew it was coming back. No. <laughs> I know. Well, so that way I can just sit here. I haven't had my two shots of espresso yet, so I can I can sit back and go, yeah, yeah, whatever. What's <laughs> <laughs> well, important, we learn to embody um, when we think yeah, about why? knowledge. Because uh, if, we, if, we, if we are to have a relationship with the Lord, if we want to know the Lord, you know, we're used to head knowledge and thinking that it's just it's just knowing it in our head. But if we understand what knowledge is biblically, particularly when Adam knew Eve, it was a very bodily knowing. 
so it's part of it's 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 learning to know the Lord and learning to know what it means to live out our faith. Um, and part of it's that's that's an aspect of, of kind of building our our relationship with the Lord. It's it's more than just this, yeah, this this quote unquote head knowledge. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, listeners. Well, that's it for today, and thanks for joining us. And, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, that's good. That's exa- that's exactly right. Um, let me fan it out just a bit more. You're right about embodied, and and you excellent on no, because that's that's what we often miss in the uh, the new covenant. Christ said he when he when he raised the cup he said this is my blood of the new covenant. What was unique about the new covenant as opposed to the old? He said, uh, "Now I will be in you, and no one will have to say to the other, know the Lord." Why? Mm, wow. Why? Because uh, they will <laughs> they will know him. Through, yeah. the, through his body. Yes, bodily. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, in the last couple of years, listeners, we've been talking a lot more about the marital gospel. And I, you know, I confess that it's, you know, I'm a late bloomer, late bloomer boomer. And um, over the last, just over the last 20 years, what's unique about the new covenant but I think most of us in our traditions here in the U.S. miss, and frankly, don't hear a whole lot in the traditions that should get it, is it does go back to Adam knew Eve. Can you imagine Adam and Eve make love? And then if there, pretend there were other people on the planet at that time. And someone comes up and says to Adam and Eve, hey, you guys ought to try making love. It's really cool. They'd look at the guy, and I figure it's a guy because that'd be a knucklehead thing for a guy to say. And they'd say, we do. You don't have to tell us that. That's the most wondrous thing out there. I'm now quoting the Proverbs and the Psalms. There's always wondrous things, but the most wondrous thing in the world is the way of a man with a woman. And so in this new covenant is bodily, and in the new covenant, the design in it is one doesn't have to say to another, Pat, know the Lord. But they would know you're talking here about that which is similar to nuptial union. It's that wondrous, eye opening, intense, jaw dropping, time stopping. And because it's that, it would be absurd for when you and Maddie were married, you come back from your honeymoon, and I say, I'll tell you what, Kathy and I would tell you, you really ought to, you really ought to try making love. Now, because of that, that's the way it ought to be under the ought is can will paradigm. But the fact of the matter, the way it is, is the history of God's people, is to forget this is an embodied faith, and hence, your body has to be trained has to be prepared for that final and and, uh, that wedding banquet, wedding feast, wedding night, has to be prepared. 
Well, the reason it has to be prepared, first of all, is that it's not neutral. That's that's the way I would probably try to make it as, as clear as possible for this reason. Uh, again, most of us in most of our traditions, I rarely, if ever, hear someone say, you know, I've been practicing the discipline of frugality. I've been, you know, my wife and I have been practicing the discipline of sacrifice over the last several years. My wife and I have been practicing the discipline of generosity. My wife and I have been practicing, you, you get the point. You rarely, if ever, hear someone talking about they're practicing the disciplines. And you can share that with people, not in a braggadocio way. It's because of this. At this moment, Pat, my body, your body, everyone's body, everyone, whether they know the Lord or not, is either your enemy or your ally, but it is not neutral. Mm. Well, that's, I think, I think you might have nailed it. <laughs> I, so, yeah. But you see in a disembodied faith, how do we view the body? Yeah. Well, I was even thinking as, as you were saying that, you know, the sac, I'm practicing the, the disciplines, the, the opposing that to what may, maybe is more common in a, in, in a disembodied faith, which is, uh, you know, I'm just I'm living out my faith or I'm, um, trying to honor God with what I do. I don't know. Something like that. That's, that's a little bit more airy. Doesn't, yes. doesn't quite get to the, get to the body. Yes. Or, I'm, Hey, we're in a Bible study group. No, please hear me. There's great value in studying the Bible. Mm -hmm. But I'll, the chief thing I hear is we want to get you in a small group. What do you do in a small group? Study the Bible. What else do you do? We talk about the Bible. And uh, so we're in a Bible study group. Without hearing ourselves, we are saying that um, our mind is what matters most. Think right, act right. And uh, you even have people say, um, you know, quote Romans 12, 2, about that. And they forget all about Romans 12, 1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. The mind trails the body. And now neuroscience and science is catching up to scripture that your mind follows your body, your bodily impulses. And if your mind is not trained, even Lewis wrote about this, C.S. Lewis. He said, uh, children, I think you might have called them like uh, little moral idiots. They've got to be trained. And if you don't train them, they'll self-define uh, everything. What's good, what's bad, uh, why sugar should be eaten all the time, why it's so wonderful, why, why are we, if they were in charge of the world, they would have died of ice cream morning, noon, and night. Uh, it's cause, that's because your body isn't trained and if it's not trained try talking a five-year-old into the merits of uh, vegetables versus uh, snickers bars 
so a disembodied faith really tries to take a rational approach to things. Now, we are to be rational, but we're not. The point of rationality was to always, historically, was to demonstrate the limits of rationality. And um, so it's, your body isn't neutral. Yeah, and I will I'll highlight what I've highlighted before, which is, if there's one thing I've learned from you, Mike, it's not that you're saying it's one or the other. What you are saying is we've typically been doing the one and we've been missing the other. Yeah. And so that's that. I think that message can sometimes get lost when people uh, listen to these. What you're saying is the one is good, but it's missing a critical piece. That's right. And to butcher the famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, he says, uh, some, you know, if, if you have a big enough why, you can endure any how. Hmm. And I just think that, uh, again, most of my friends don't have a big enough why for the disciplines. But they're called you know, spiritual bodily disciplines. And so when they report on their how and what they're doing to to do all these things like live for the Lord and so on and so forth, all of which are laudable. I never hear uh, bodily training. So I joke, it'd be like, you feeling the Lord is saying, we're in the Boston Marathon this spring. You say, so I joined a study group, we're gonna study running. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm also praying the spirit would fill me. And technically, Yes, because God is who he is. You could win the Boston Marathon with no training. I think that would um, so warp your view of the spiritual life for the rest of your life that I'm not sure you'd ever recover. So um, it would be hard to imagine that God would say to all the heavenly hosts, let's waft Mike right to the front of the pack and have him win because then he will love me more. I would say Mike would love you less, Lord, because he'll just start becoming a couch potato. Saying, Lord, now I need patience for that blankety blank so-and-so. And I'm just going to sit here eating French fries on the couch until I get it. So this was, we just don't have a big enough why, Pat. And I think the big enough why is it right at this very moment, anyone who's listening to this, your body is not neutral. It's either you're in reverse and don't know it, or you're going forward and don't know it. And furthermore, if you don't practice disciplines, you on your own cannot determine which way you're going generally. Generally. Because most of us bias our left hemisphere, and the left hemisphere is unaware of its shortcomings and over-optimistic about its virtues. And more often than not, people will self-define their spirituality like as if they grew up in Lake Wobegon, which most of you don't remember, Garrison Keillor's famous uh, book and series from public radio, but he said, Lake Wobegon, where, where all the children are above average. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so 
Lent, amongst other things, if you practice silence and solitude, and then fasting, you won't just listen to others, you will pay attention. And when you pay attention, you'll hear whether or not theirs is an embodied faith. Because from the conscience, we speak, Jesus said, from the conscience, which is self-awareness or the lack thereof, we speak. That's where we're unedited in our speech. When I have people I've known for 20, 30 years who I have never heard them in any way mention any spiritual discipline, they are unaware of what the body has to do with the faith. So they are unawares that they are revealing that theirs is a disembodied faith. You you mentioned silence, solitude, and fasting just now. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, and and fasting fasting can take a number of forms, obviously. Um, You know, very generally, it could be just giving up something. Often it's, it's referred to in the context of food. Um, yeah, so let's, uh, I don't know if you want to go to the how or the what more, but yeah, I'm curious no. what, what different, uh, types of fasting that mm-hmm. you're familiar with. Um, and then again, you know, I think depending on the, what may determine the, how, how do you, how do you actually do this? Well, um, you know, food, for example, you could, you could skip a meal and be miserable and be pa- impatient with everyone. And that obviously isn't fasting well, <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah, maybe maybe just more broadly, uh, mm-hmm. what let's talk what what different elements of fasting are you familiar yeah. with, or have you have you seen done well before? Sure. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, I, I would never encourage fasting without having some experience in silence and solitude. Hmm. I just think uh, the fa- the fast is too abrupt. It more often than not fails. It's more often than not for weight control or uh, whatever. But um, you're piercing one of your most base appetites without first puncturing some of your more accessible appetites. And um, that's what silence and solitude gets after. So let me suggest, first of all, there's a reason why the half of the disciplines which are unplugging us from the juice we get in life from places we don't know where we get it that's that's what i mean by abstinence and fasting is critical but uh, i would suggest for silence and solitude and here's here's why silence properly practiced will tune your ear to how much we talk to sort of uh, 
how much our body compels us to talk for all sorts of warped and not healthy reasons. It might be to explain ourselves. It might be to defend ourselves. It might be to let people know we're in the room. It might be to let people know we're the smartest person in the room. It might be uh, what I call, I know several people, I call me too people, that uh, no matter what you might suggest, they go, oh yeah, yeah, we've done that. And, um, you know, uh, the reason James warns about the tongue, but you're giving away the game as to uh, why, why we say what we say. And I think that the average person is self-unaware of uh, why is it important for you, since God created by speech, and speech is holy, and so important. And in fact, Jesus um, really meant it when he said, Every careless word, Mike, that you speak, you will give an account of in the judgment. Now, he couldn't possibly mean that. <laughs> I mean, we're human. We're not perfect. Well, yeah, he didn't mean it. Because uh, there's a reason why in Ephesians, he uh, said, don't let careless words pass from your mouth and grieve the Spirit of God. How do careless words grieve God? Here's why. Here's how. We read in Genesis that when God spoke, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's actually a mystical picture of, of, um, of what we know later on. Is the Spirit is often described as uh, the deposit Jesus makes in us. <laughs> if that conjures a picture in your mind, you're right, because it's called the seed. The semen is what that refers to in the Old Testament. Why Jesus said, I, I will be in you in the new covenant. will never leave you. The first fruits of this marriage to Christ. So all that is mystically depicted with the Spirit of God hovering, just as he would hover over Mary and come upon her. And she would conceive. This is a conception you're watching in Genesis. And it's done through proper speech. God saying, let there be light. Darkness. Separates this, identifies this, names this, names this, names this, names this. And it's always good, 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 good. And then let us make them in our image. That's described now as very good. See, the Spirit of God understands that with speech, you're actually a sub-creator. Hence, when you call someone a moron, Jesus said, you're guilty of uh, being damned to the lake of fire. Why? Because that is not right. a moron. So with speech, and I, I don't think that the, uh, self-included here, I don't think we're aware, or there's very few mechanisms in, in us that go, rather than me just insert myself in this conversation, why don't I listen? Is it really necessary? What, what do I add right now, a la Ephesians, that gives grace to those who hear? Hmm. 
Now, grace doesn't mean you don't say something prophetic. Like, I think you're, I think we might be running wrong here. Ours might be a disembodied faith. The, grace doesn't mean there's nothing prophetic. I think that's the way it's often inferred today, especially by clergy, is uh, to be pastoral means to be kind, gracious, loving, and affirming. But it never means you call out the idols of our age. So first of all, why silence? I practice it enough that you begin to suddenly hear. You begin to have ears to hear. Yourself included. And the number of times God now will actually you train your body, and your body will say, bah, 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 bah. and instead you, your body will just be calm. And I'll listen, and I'll pay attention. So that's why uh, silence, solitude is a number of times we interject ourselves into something just so that we feel self-important versus and we've talked a lot about this, Pat. Part of uh, dominion is to go, is my presence there really helpful or not? Maybe not. Maybe this person knows how to do it. Maybe I'll let them try it. They aren't asking for my help. I'm pretty sure they don't know what they're doing, but they're not asking for my help. So if they're not asking for my help, they don't walk away with a condescending, that stupid blankety-blank, they don't know what they're doing. You just go... I've certainly done that before, but it's not very helpful if they're not asking for the help. So I'm going to be silent. And also, I think that somehow my presence is almost like a brooding over them, as if I'm anticipating that they're going to fail. So I'm going to recede. Because it's not vital for me to be present everywhere, and I can't be anywhere. But where I am, I'm going to be fully present. So I'm going to just speed through those two. But unless you've got some experience in silence and solitude, I don't think fasting is very helpful. Hmm. So I'm sure I raised a question or two on that, but I'll just make a comment on fasting. But I think for me, but I've seen this with others who actually do practice these over a lengthy period of time, say a year or so. But actually I've seen with some young people recently much quicker than that how in silence they begin to realize how much they talk. Because in insecure people, silence is not, a, not golden. And so you can use language to mask insecurities. You can go on the attack with others. You can, you can exaggerate what they said so that now you're you make a straw man out of it. You're doing all these things and you're doing them impulsively. It's not like, it's not rational, but it is bodily. And you'll, you'll never perceive it by just saying, okay, I'm going to sit down and think about this. At this point, at that point rather, you are primarily in your left hemisphere of your brain, the one that rationalizes. You've got to instead open your body bodily to the Lord, which more involves more the right hemisphere, which does not have an agenda, nor does it claim it knows what's going to happen, but you're going to be still 
and begin to know I'm God. See, we're back to that word now. Yeah, one of the better definitions of solitude that I've heard is actually not by a believer, um, but someone who understands the importance of it. And that definition was was something like um, a time to be alone without anyone else's uh, thoughts disrupting you. Mm-hmm. And I just, I like that, you know, and that's why I think so- solitude and silence go hand in hand. You, you often, if not always refer to them together. And that's a big, big part of the reason why is because silence will always interrupt those, those things. I mean, a lack of silence will always interrupt you. And so that's why mm-hmm. it's really hard to have solitude without, without a level of, of silence and in silence. I like the silence of thought because I can sit there and be silent on my phone for hours. <laughs> Still missing the point. <laughs> yes, because you're talking to your body without knowing it. And um, yeah, for, I think for most people, it does end up it's either so you can get away at uh, a mealtime or you can get away. You have to get up early in the morning, which just was always been sort of natural for me. Or, But the, the I get it. I mean, most people, and most of the time I find, by the way, those who are in business, um, they tend to have more of an activist bent to them. And so they tend to think, uh, oh, silence and solitude, that's what clergy do, but I don't have time. I got a, I got a busy day. I get up in the morning and I'm revving. And um, they don't know why they're revving. And they don't. They just don't know why. And But people who are really revving or like to brag on how busy their life is um, they just don't know whether or not that's uh, feeling some uh, some unfelt un- unaware rather need of the moment be I really won't be happy until my barns are big enough or stuffed with enough and uh, there's a magical figure they have in their mind they're not familiar with what it is you know you think of uh, the famous quote by uh, Carnegie and ask him, what would it take to make you happy? He said, would have been today's standard a billionaire. And he said, one more dollar. <laughs> wow. He just couldn't get there. And, no. uh, so silence and solitude, because fasting, fasting, it is fascinating how what the Bible talks about the mouth and all the sensory and why it's associated with not only the praise of God, but um, what it does to shape our whole views of life. There's a reason why Hebrew children in the Old Testament was told, when you teach them the word, couple it with a spoonful of honey or some honey dipped in a stick or whatever, but associate that so that those words are sweet and so now you're even thinking of those verses that say that, aren't you, Pat? Mm-hmm. And um, tell you two quick fast verses. Well, so before I knew anything about this, I had my wisdom teeth pulled out, and I was, I guess, 25 or somewhere. And um, my future wife, at that time, just good friend Kathy, uh, she is the one who said, "I'll drive you home," which is really helpful because uh, I didn't know I'd be so zonked. And um, she actually tell you that. That's when she began to have feelings for me. This pathetic figure that she was helping up the stairs back to my apartment. <laughs> she goes, <laughs> "Look at that." I don't know how that works, 
But uh, so I was on a unforced, I was on a forced fast for two days. I just ugh, didn't want to eat anything. But um, so two days, and I had a hankering for uh, at lunchtime for scrambled eggs and a cold beer, <laughs> which I did. I think someone came in and said, "What are you doing?" I said, "This tastes like lobster." <laughs> so here's what fast does. That's one story. The uh, other story that's uh, when I finally began to practice it properly, I'll never forget. I was on a trip up from North Carolina and I stopped at a gas station that sold everything under the sun to eat. In fact, there was a McDonald's in this gas station in um, North Carolina, which does bring all sorts of strange mm, honey with these French fries. What do I smell? I think it's petrol. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember pumping the gas and looking around saying, Oh my God, I've never noticed how much food is at this gas station and how much I just eat impulsively. Mm, mm. I really don't know if I'm hungry. And you know, one of the tip offs is if I miss one meal, I'm famous for saying, I'm starving. <laughs> and then I repented. I don't know what starvation is. What well, in the Spirit of God, it says, we're back to Ephesians. Don't let careless words. They grieve him because you're not defining reality anymore. That's not real. You want to see starving people? Come with me, Mike. We'll get on a plane. They are not, you are not starving. Why would you even say that? Because your body is in reverse. It's your enemy right now. And so fasting it needs to be done a couple of ways. First of all, if you're married or have close friends or you're used to gathering all the time, you need to carve out space. So you just say, they'll say to Kathy, just, just without any moral judgments being laid on, hey, I'm on a three-day fast. And uh, so I'd be happy to join you for meals. I'm going to be having just a glass of water. Um, but I in no way want you to feel like I'm saying, and you ought to be doing this too. And then at the same time, I've had, you know, meetings with people. It could be a coffee house, could be lunch, what have you. So I just let them know ahead of time. So I'm gonna, and, and I've had friends do that too. I think of a good friend of mine named Bob. And when we had lunch a couple of years ago, we just sat down and he just said, hey, you know, just a heads up, I'm on a two-day fast. And so I'll be ordering water. And fine. I think it's the biggest thing is you, get, you actually have to uh, carve out the space for those who will be impacted by what you're doing and do it in such a way that they understand this is what God's called me to, uh, to pursue, to train my body. And then I'll cap out this one thing before we run out of time here, Pat. This is particularly important during Lent. Now, the two high seasons in the church calendar are Christmas, the birth of Christ, incarnation, and um, the uh, and Easter. Both of these are smothered over with a back, if you go deep enough into them, they're both the marital gospel. Jesus' parables include warnings of a bride 
who is not prepared when the bridegroom comes with his entourage and the bride has her entourage and they go to the wedding banquet and then the wedding night. Those are sober. They have mystical endings that I, I can't begin to explain. I have some guesses, but boy, he says, throw, throw them into the outer darkness. Let's not worry about that right now. Rather, the history of Israel and the church is a need to repent and to prepare. Lent and Advent are both periods of penitence and preparation before the great scenes, the two great scenes in the faith. Penitence and preparation. And Advent, I would say, if the, you know, on the macro scale, the macro level, great need of repentance in the American church is to repent of all its disembodied theologies and anthropologies. But we'll never get there if you don't have institutional leaders as well as just everyday believers. Silence, solitude, fasting, and being to perceive, I don't know why I even have a body. Maybe this whole notion of our enlightenment, disembodied faith exactly right. And I have news for you. Not news for you, Pat, but if God impresses you upon that, there's no wiggle room. Everything God has ever impressed upon me and silence, solitude, and fasting, there's no debate. There's no, but, 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 Lord. So I want to I ask specifically, there are some people, I'm sure, who have tried fasting and you get to that point where you're just hungry and mm-hmm. you're you're frustrated whatever whatever that may be mm-hmm. um, maybe you've given up or maybe you made it through and, and it's it's just give me the scrambled eggs and the cold beer you know? <laughs> uh, I, I've so I've just speaking personally I, I've found some of the ways I've explained fasting in the past is when I when I feel those really those hunger cues they're not even always that I need to eat at that moment but my body is just simply mm-hmm. conditioned to be hungry at this hour yeah. That's when I normally eat. Um, one of the ways that that has allowed me, you know, to kind of cultivate that affection of Christ is a reminder that in in this world of sin, this is actually how we ought to be feeling always. You know, uh, this is that's the condition. That's the the, the sin the sinful realm. Hunger should be the default. And so, in this moment, I'm almost experiencing the four chapter gospel. You know, this is that moment of is. This is the fall. This is what it means to to be hungry. And as I go through this period of fasting, that is just one element that helps to cultivate this deeper yearning or desire for Christ. And so at the end of this, it's not this miserable, ah, that, that was just, it was not a fun time. I finally made it. It was more a sobering reality when I first eat at the end of that, of this is the grace I've been given. You know, which you can translate to my body and elements of that, sure. Um, but mm-hmm. it's it's that, just some of those, those throughout the fasting process, how am I experiencing this? How am I 
in a way guiding my experience to cultivate my desire more towards yeah. Christ. I'm I'm curious if you have anything like that that might yeah. be helpful. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I've forgotten. There's a number of things that I've uh, developed along with fasting, but I hadn't given them up. You just reminded me. So here they are. Uh, first of all, you know, if it's going really badly, just pull the plug on it. Um, hmm. It's it's not it's not benefiting anyone. Um, you can always circle back. Second, that's why uh, I like Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And he said these are these are you to enter these things experimentally. And so, Lord knows how many experiments you are down the first time you go around, thing blows up in your face. Don't give up. But the fact of the matter is, don't also you know say, oh, I know what they're for. The disciplines are to create martyrs, and I feel like a martyr right now. So this is <laughs> very holy. Um, third, this is this is perhaps most important for me, or has been. Uh, get your body involved in something else. Generally, I go out and do work in the yard, or go to the gym, or go for a run. What I discovered in doing that is, first of all, uh, get your mind off it. That's helpful. Second, you've done, you've experienced this, Pat. Uh, oh, uh, by the way, drink a lot of water. You're not really hungry. More often than not, you're dehydrated. Yeah. And uh, But you don't know your body well enough to know that. Mm. Um, but also, when you come off a workout, like if I come back to the gym sometimes, Kathy might say, hey, you ready for lunch? I'm like, no, no. And you've experienced the same thing, Pat. You would get a good workout, and the first thing you want to do is sit down and have a steak. <laughs> no. No. You want a big tall glass of water yeah and so um get outside uh work in the yard pull weeds uh, chop wood if you want to be abe lincoln-esque but uh, go for a walk or go to the gym and you'll find more often than not that your body has set up a signal that when you're either um your heart rate is slowing down because you have been lethargic or you've been slothful, or you have all these things that you've trained your body in, and your body's response unconsciously has been stuff your face because there are endorphins that are released that give you a sense of pleasure. And to break that, if you get out and go for a walk or go to the gym, <clears throat> you will also get a, that same release. But now the, the release is not with eating. It's a full body release where literally some of your ligaments or tendons, your muscles are getting stretched. They're getting worked. They're getting sore. But they actually in some ways also are benefiting from it. So you've actually involved your entire body and you've changed your sense of hunger which is a misread from your brain and you're redirecting your brain to here's what I was actually, I was thirsty. And I was also just, uh, I've got, could be a lactose buildup in my muscles, could be all sorts of things are going on and you're burning some stuff off. You're burning off fat, which we know fat screams for sugar. And of course, another thing, if I understand the body correctly is, this is kind of scary. Fat cells never die. They shrivel. Yeah. So you can be deprived. How do you deprive them? When your fat cells are going, eat me, feed me. You have to remember <laughs> a little shop of horrors. 
feed me, Seymour. You go, oh, no, I'm going to fast. We're not feeding you right now. We are going to feed the body what it actually wants. <clears throat> doesn't know it. It's not screaming loud enough. And you and I, Pat, you know very well. I mean, uh, I've been back in the gym now for a year and a half. And you, you know, you come to the end of the day, and if you haven't done whatever your regimen is there, you feel. Yeah, not not ideal. That's a good hunger. That's a different hunger than, I'm tired. Mm. I'll have a big old bowl of ice cream. It will make you feel good. But this remind me of, uh, it's in the suburbs of what, you know, Moses forsook the passing pleasures of sin. Fasting is you forsake the passing pleasures of what you get to put whatever it is you put in your mouth to in some way mask or coat over or make you feel about, better about yourself, hmm. your situation, your work that you don't enjoy, the kids that are driving you crazy, and it, it will give you an endorphin dump. And you know, so they're going, and for a lot, for some people, that yes, that's partly why drugs come about, which are bodily training, or uh, drink too much alcohol, which again masks over and gives you a sense of <sighs> everything's yep. okay. And what you don't know, it is like the builder of the big barns and stuffing them then saying, now it's well with my soul. And notice what Jesus says in the parable. You fool. You fool. Fool. Yes, you have even fooled your own body. You fooled yourself on how real life works. And tonight... Your soul is being called for, and you are not prepared. Lent is for preparing to be presented as a virgin bride. I'm quoting Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, but it requires repentance. When was the last time, Pad, you had, you talked to a Christian who said, hey, I got to share something with you. I am, I am really repenting of something. And it's said in such a genuine way, you know, they're not making a comment about you. And I'm not suggesting maybe, yeah, maybe you've been a part of the problem mm -hmm. here. It's more a sense of this person. This person has been, God's been dealing with them. 